it was a busy week and a lot of different get-togethers and services. And so uh, we're going to plow through this today, but I'm thankful for all of you who uh, dragged yourself out of bed this morning and, and got here. And you, you don't look tired, so that's good, uh, except Jason. Jason just yawned. I saw that. <laughs> um, but, um, but I'm glad that you're here and you made a commitment to be here today, and I pray that the Lord will bless you for that. Um, I've always loved disaster movies, right? Movies where something, uh, some apocalyptic thing is happening, whether it's a virus or, or aliens or zombies or the earth just crumbling in on itself. And it's weird because they're terrible movies, right? They're just not good movies. They never win any kind of award, but I, I can't help myself because I'm just fascinated by them. And so in this weird sort of interest of mine, I've seen the same type of scene played out in, in all kinds of movies. Uh, where the president or some high-ranking general or someone in charge is gathered with all their advisors and then an expert comes in and makes a presentation. And what they do is they show you on a screen a map of our country or, or the earth and they, and they start to show projections. Here's what it looks like. Here's what we're going to be facing in 24 hours. Here's how far this thing will spread in 48 hours. And here's what it looks like in one week. And then in two weeks we're talking about the elimination of the human race. And then there's some ominous music, Right. It's always daunting and always terrifying. Everyone in the room finally realizes the gravity of what they're facing. And it's a cheap, easy movie ploy, and it's cliche, but I can't help but be drawn in by it. And you might be thinking, now what does this have to do with Acts? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I can, I can envision a similar scene occurring without the technology, but occurring among the Jewish leaders in Acts. Because I want you to think about what they've done to this point. Right? They, they have opposed Jesus at every turn. First, as when he's on his earthly ministry, they threaten to throw anyone out of the temple in the synagogue if they claim to believe in him. Then they pay Judas to betray Jesus. And then they bring Jesus in on trial and they pay people to make up stories about him. They take him to Pilate and convince Pilate to execute Jesus by crucifixion. And Jesus is, is whipped and beaten brutally and nailed to a cross and pierced in his side and thrown in a tomb. Then when Jesus raises from the dead, the Jewish leaders then pay the Roman guards in charge of protecting the tomb to say the disciples stole the body. And after that, they, they hear Peter and John uh, healing the man in the temple and hear them teaching in Jesus' name. And so they arrest Peter and John and leave them in jail overnight and threaten them. And they tell Peter and John that they are to stop teaching in the name of Jesus immediately. They later, they later in Acts 5 arrest all the apostles and throw them all in jail. But the next day they discover that an angel has let them out and the apostles are teaching again in the name of Jesus. So they bring them again in on trial and demand them to stop. And if it wasn't for Gamaliel, one in their midst who talked them out of it, they would have killed them all that day, Luke tells us. And so they've used force, they've used all of their power, they used all of their influence, they used all of their scheming, they used a good portion of their money to try and stop this Jesus movement. They have bankrupted their morals. They have taken a life. They have robbed people of their freedom. They have lost themselves completely in this mission. And for what? For what? Jesus started with 12 disciples, one of whom they got to betray him. He died on the cross, surrounded by a handful of women and what they thought was their final blow. And then he just keeps beating them. First, he rises from the dead. Then on Pentecost, 3,000 people placed their faith in Jesus and joined the church. Then we're told at least another 5,000 joined. So for all of their efforts, their best case scenario is that in very little time, Jesus has went from 11 followers to over 8,000. And can you imagine them sitting together in the room thinking, what in the world do we have to do to stop this? It was here, it was small, it was contained. But project this thing out, how big is it going to get? 
What's it going to look like a month from now, two months from now, six months from now? And their frustration would lead to desperation. Their desperation would lead to rage, and their rage would lead to insanity. And that's what we saw the last time we were in Acts. Because two weeks ago, we read the story of Stephen. And in that story, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, behaved not as rational thinking people, but as madmen on tilt looking for something to devour. So when Stephen stands in front of them and points out to them that they've completely misunderstood their history, that Jesus was what everything pointed to, that he was something to celebrate, they were not in a place where they could hear truth. And all they knew is that they were hearing what they didn't want to hear. And in their minds, this Jesus thing needs to be stopped now. And so they physically drag Stephen out of the city and hurl stones at him, beating him until he dies. And there was nothing orderly, nothing calm, nothing structured. It was just rage and insanity and chaos. Now, animal experts will tell you that there's a danger involved when an animal crosses a line and kills a human being. Last year in India, there was one tiger responsible for the deaths of nine people. In 2013, uh, in, in, um, in Nepal, a pack of leopards began attacking and eating human beings. Now, human beings are not the natural enemies of these animals. In fact, researchers have discovered that the first attack of an animal on a human is always done out of fear or desperation or confusion. But then something happens. I'm going to struggle through this name, but deal with me. Maheshwar Dekal. Okay, he's an ecologist at the Department of National Parks and Wildlife Conservation in Nepal. He tells CNN this. He said, since human blood has more salt than animal blood, once wild animals get the taste of the salty blood, they do not like the taste of other animals. Now what he's saying there is this, that these animals can literally get a taste for human blood. Okay? And they like it, and so they want more and more and more. Now we're going to read in Acts 8 today. That human beings can act just the same way. Because I'd like to tell you, right, that Stephen was this one-time tragic event. I'd like to tell you that these Jewish leaders got all their rage and all their issues out on Stephen. I'd like to tell you that they saw his bloody corpse lying on the ground after their adrenaline left them. And they began to question their actions. But what really happened is they got a taste for the blood of Christ's church and they wanted more. So look at Acts chapter 8 starting in verse 1. It says, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. They're talking about Stephen there. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Now, the writers of the Bible are very efficient, Okay. They describe these massive events in just a handful of words. So I want you to slow down and realize what Luke just told us. Let your mind begin to picture and imagine the scenes. The brutal murder of Stephen wasn't the conclusion to any kind of story. It simply served as a spark which lit a giant fireball of destruction. Because on that same day, Luke tells us, they took their attention off of Stephen and went looking for all the rest. And at least 8,000 people were scattered. They had to flee for their lives. Most of them had probably lived in Jerusalem all their lives. All of them had set roots there. I mean, think of the community that they had built with each other that we read about earlier in Acts in 2 and 4 and 6. They, they had shared everything in common. They were looking out for the widows. There was great joy among them. That's what Luke tells us. And now they're scattered. They're all over the place, fleeing for their lives to protect their family's freedom. While this is occurring, some men get the difficult job of burying Stephen. Stephen was loved by so many in the church. 
He'd become a leader. He, would, he cared for the widows. He's one of the seven chosen for that job in Acts 6. And not only has he been murdered, but, but it doesn't take much imagination to wonder what a corpse would look like if the person had been stoned to death. And these men have to care for him and move his body and bury him. And Luke tells us that he did this with great mourning. They were grieving and in pain. Back in the city, Saul, the one who held the coats, killing Stephen so they could compel him without hindrance, is now going door to door. Think of the dedication. Think of the hatred. Think of the zeal required to go door to door. And he's physically dragging out men and women and throwing them into jail. Now, as you picture all that, I want you to remember the crimes of this church, right? Because thus far in Acts, we've been told that this church feeds and cares for widows. Right? We've been told that they look out for the poor, that they share everything they have with them. We're told that, that people with diseases and ailments have been healed. I mean, that's a real dangerous group of criminals that need to be wiped out for the safety of the city, isn't it? Let's not downplay it. Here at the start of Acts chapter 8, the church is in tatters. This is chaos everywhere. There's tragedy everywhere. There's suffering here beyond what any of us have experienced. And for what? Because the Jewish leaders wanted the church of Jesus to be stopped at all costs. Seems silly, no? But here's the other thing. It's also futile. And here's why. The mission of God to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world simply cannot be stopped regardless of foe. Since the time of Christ, there have been those, just like the Jewish leaders, who wish to destroy the Christian faith. And what they've discovered is that the harder they press, the more it grows. Let's just think for a second about some of the governments that have lined up against Christianity. For instance, I know that we were removed by many centuries, but can we all just agree that Rome was legit? Rome ruled all the land from India to Egypt, to England. They were the great power of the earth. They had armies and facilities and rules and systems of government set up to tax their constituents and acquire resources and keep their control. Their technology was hundreds of years in advanced over other civilizations. They built thousands, they built buildings thousands of years ago that are still standing today. They have roads they drive on in Italy today that the Romans built. And all of the power, all of the resources, all of the might of the Roman Empire came down against the Christians because the emperor decided that it was in Rome's best interest to wipe out the followers of the way, as they called it. What we just read in Acts 8 is child's play compared to what Rome did to the church. They fed our brothers and sisters to lions. They boiled them alive. They sawed them in two. They beheaded them. They crucified them upside down by the thousands. And they did all this publicly all to put on a show, all in an effort to stop the church. Yet history tells us that by 351 AD, there were Christian churches throughout the Roman-occupied territory and that there were 350 million followers of Christ, which made up more than half of the Roman Empire, the population. See, you simply cannot stop God from accomplishing his mission. It seems no one has yet learned this. Throughout history, more and more have tried to stop the church by persecuting it and it just hasn't worked. One of the most dangerous places for a Christian to live right now is in northern Africa. Or in countries like Nigeria and Uganda and others, radical Muslim groups are engaged in an all-out war to claim they want to cleanse the earth of Christians. Yet in 1900, there were 10 million Christians in Africa. There are 360 million today. By, most conservative, by the most conservative estimates, there will be 633 million Christians in Africa by 2025. Try as you might, when you fight against God, you will lose. 
And the, church, the church's mission to be witnesses of Jesus and take his gospel to the world is God's mission. It's how God is reconciling this place back to himself. And if you oppose that, then you oppose God and you lose that battle every time. For instance, did you, did you notice something in verse 1 that we read there? When all these Christians were scattered, where did they flee to? As verse 1 tells us, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now why are those places significant? It's not just that they're geographically close. Think back to the very beginning of the book in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus hands his disciples their mission. When he says, you will receive my power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They've done their job in Jerusalem. The whole city knows they're there. The whole city has been impacted by their ministry. The whole city has heard them teach in the name of Jesus and thousands upon thousands have given their lives to Christ. But now in the midst of the chaos, they leave Jerusalem and where do they go? To Judea and Samaria. And listen to this report in verse 4. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, you've got to give the church credit here. Their lives have been thrown upside down. At least one of their own has already been killed. And the reason for it all is that they've been telling people about Jesus and preaching the word. So they're forced, as they're forced from their homes and come into these new cities, you could understand, couldn't you, if they decided to just lay low for a little bit. To catch their breath, to make sure things are safe. But that's not what they do at all. Luke tells us that wherever they, it is they were scattered, they preached the word. That wherever it is they went, they were witnesses of Jesus. Because again, listen to me, if I watch you die and then you walk out of your grave and you're not dead anymore, then I'm hitching my ride with you no matter what, right? I'm, I'm rolling with you no matter what comes my way because you can defeat death so there's nothing they can do to me. And that was the attitude of these first Christians. I love what we're told about this scene in Samaria specifically. Because after the Jews returned from the Babylonian exile less than 600 years before Acts 8, there were divisions that arose between the Jews and Samaritans. Now, it's a lot of religious context uh, that doesn't seem to be as big a deal as us that it would have been to them back then. But what happened was, is that the Jews returned, the Samaritans wanted to assist the Jews in the building of the temple. But the Jewish leaders recognized they didn't worship the one true God alone, so they rejected their help, and a divide began. If you read the book of Nehemiah, we find Samaritans mocking and opposing Nehemiah as he oversaw the building of the temple. And so the Samaritans settled right next to the Jews, as close as they could to Jerusalem. And they built their own temple on top of a mountain and claimed it was the only place you could worship. Samaria then became a refuge for Jewish criminals and lawbreakers who, trying to avoid punishment or facing exile, would move to Samaria. And this lessened the view of Samaria greatly in the eyes of the Jewish people and filled Samaria with people who had an axe against, to, to grind against the Jewish people and their leaders. The Samaritans had the law of Moses and believed in it, but they rejected all the prophets and wisdom literature and the Hebrew scriptures. And all these things started piling up and all these things deepened the tension more and more to the point where by the time Jesus came on the scene, the Jews viewed Samaritans as the worst of the human race. They disallowed themselves or their children to have any association, any contact, anything at all to do with the Samaritans. Now, tragically, 
Human history is rife with prejudice and racism, but you'd be stretched to find a group that had more hatred for another group than the Jews had with the Samaritans, and the feeling was mutual. Now, in that context, think of the beauty of this. When Jesus, in John chapter 4, walks right into Samaria, something no Jewish man ever did. And then of all things, he begins to talk to a Samaritan woman at a well. He was breaking every single cultural stigma of his day. Then he spends two days in Samaria teaching them who he was. And right before he sends into heaven, he tells his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Samaria. And now in Acts 8, we see Philip teaching them the word and proclaiming Christ. And God shows up in a big way, supporting Philip in this, in joy, not hatred, not bigotry, not jealousy, but joy overtakes that city. Farther down in Acts 8, you'll read where Peter and John come into Samaria and pray with them. And they all receive the Holy Spirit. And here is the overarching message. Jesus is telling his church... I don't care what others think about them. I don't care what you were taught to believe about them. I don't care what your relatives think about them. These people are valued in my eyes. They are valued because they are made in my image. They are valued because I died for them just as much as I died for you. And so my church will not be a place where prejudice is allowed. My church will not be a place where you pick and choose who to love and who to serve. Because you are called to go everywhere to love and serve everyone. And listen, there's something we've got to confess. Everyone in this room is a sinner, myself included. And so in all of our sinful hearts, we have a propensity to devalue other people. And we all do this based on on, on individual and unique things. We do this based on personality types, or differences in religion, or nationality, or the color of people's skin, or differences in culture, family backgrounds, or socioeconomic status. And the cure for this wickedness in our hearts is not to act like it doesn't exist. The cure is not to sweep it under the rug and act like we're above it. The cure is to identify it for the wickedness that it is and take it to the Lord and ask him to forgive us and change that evil within us. Because the church of Jesus is the church that goes to and loves the Samaritans. The followers of Jesus are the ones who identify who the Samaritans are in their lives and plead with God to change our hearts towards them. Because as the church of Christ, we lead the way in reconciliation. We lead the way in race relations. We lead the way in serving and loving those not like us. And at the point that you resist that is the point that you fundamentally misunderstand both the gospel and what you've been called to do. Now listen, lastly, I want us to land today by looking at this. What if Acts 8 happened to us? What if one of our own was dragged out and murdered on Lafayette Avenue? What if they came door to door dragging us to jail? I don't don't know what happened necessarily, but I know something that we'd all be wanting to know. We'd want to know why, right? Because that's the question. Isn't that the go-to question when we face suffering? Why is this happening? And the Bible tells us the root cause of all suffering, and that's sin. That sin is the lifeblood and the power source of suffering. Without sin, there would be no suffering. But the truth is, you and everyone before you and everyone after you will find the Bible frustratingly silent when it comes to diagnosing the origins of specific instances of suffering. It tells you why suffering occurs. It does not tell you why your specific suffering occurs. And though we don't face persecution from our government at this time, we have these things in common with the first church. Because here's the reality that they face and here's the reality that we face. This world is chaotic. 
This world is perplexing and confusing. This world is tragic. And God reigns over the chaos. He reigns over the confusion. He reigns over the tragedy. He reigns over all of it. He has never lost his grip on his sovereignty. He's never left his throne. He does not create evil. That's not within him. He takes evil and uses it for good. But even when evil occurs in this world, he has not lost his grip on this place. And isn't this the number one question asked of people of faith? Well, if God's good, then how come this evil occurs? Right? If God's good, then why, does my, why did my nephew get cancer? If God's good, then, then why does ISIS exist? If God's good, then why do all these bad things happen? And here's the honest answer to those as revealed in the word of God. I don't know. I don't know. As we mentioned before, suffering and evil and tragedy exist because of sin, not because of God. But if you, really, if you need a really specific answer as to why one act of suffering occurred, then the answer is, I don't know. Because every time I go to Riley Hospital for Children, I, I, I note that I have a hard time finding a parking spot because the garage is so full. And if any one of those families asked me, can you tell me why this is happening to us? The only answer I could give them is I don't know. And anyone who gives them a different answer is lying. But I know that he's God. And I know that he's good. You say, well, how how can you know that in the face of suffering? Well, for a couple reasons, okay? And first think of it this way. My four-year-old daughter's named Gemma. I love that girl. But man, we do not see eye to eye a lot. We butt heads all the time, and here's why. She has a vision for her life. Jim has a way that she would like things to be. She has a way that she would like to eat. She has a time that she would like to go to bed. She has things that she would like to do and things she'd rather not do because she's four. Now, I'm 34, and I'm her dad, and I see every one of those things differently than she sees it. Because I know how each one of those things will affect her and how each one of those things will hurt her or stunt her growth and development or set terrible patterns for her life. And she cannot, through no fault of her own, begin to grasp how I see her life. She cannot begin to comprehend why I do the things that I do and why I allow the things that I allow and the things that I don't allow. Now, we all recognize this, right? But if such a huge gap exists between me and my four-year-old, how big is the gap between me and an eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, almighty God? Because I'm temporary, I'm limited, I'm weak. I only know here and now and not fully. And he's eternal and he's limitless and his power knows no ends and he holds all time in his hands and he knows it fully. So he must permit things and use things and see things that I simply cannot see and cannot grasp and cannot understand or comprehend. Because if I understood everything that God did, then I would be God and that would be horribly tragic. So when suffering comes our way, we must grasp the truth that we may never know why in this life. I don't know why Stephen was killed. I don't know why ISIS hasn't been wiped off the face of the earth. I don't know why some people get leukemia and others don't. I don't. Listen, I'm going to level with you. 2015 was one of the craziest years I've ever experienced. It has been a wild roller coaster at the Parks household, only I don't want to ever go on the ride again. There's not been a single year in my life where more things occurred that left me genuinely perplexed and confused. Times where I had no idea what God was doing or even could begin to grasp why he was doing it. 
but I know he's good. You might be wondering, how, how can you know that? How can we always know that? How can we always be assured that God is good? All you got to do is look at the cross. That's it, the cross where you see Jesus broken and beaten and bloody. The cross where God is taking all of his wrath and all of his righteous hatred of our sin and unleashing it all on himself because he loves us. Did you know that when you suffer, God's not angry with you? Did you know that? Because all the wrath and anger of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross. So he's good, and we can know that he's good and cling to that truth when he's good, that he's good when life is not. And we're also told that he will bring good. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, one that we all know. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Here in Acts 8, the Jewish leaders intended all of this for evil. Everything they intended for evil led to countless changed lives and families in Judea and Samaria. Right? What they intended for harm, God used to save the souls of people who who did not know him. People who now will live forever and eternity in a place where there is no suffering or evil. You may never know why suffering has come your way, but you have the guarantee from God himself that he is actively working to bring good out of it. He will use it. He will use you through it. He will take what we see as bad or purely evil, and he will bring good out of it for the glory of his name. See, when we suffer, we know that God is good. We know that he will bring good, and we ultimately know as followers of Christ that he has the answer. Because towards the very end of Revelation, John describes for us what God showed him, and we're given a picture of what it will be like when Jesus has returned and everything has been made new again. And here's what we read in Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. John describes for us the day when all wrongs will be made right, the day when evil is vanquished forever, the day that will not end. Because you see, bad days, no matter how awful or tragic or chaotic they seem, bad days for the follower of Christ always leads to good days and then ultimately leads to the best of days. And we struggle with this because we are incapable of thinking about tomorrow. We want everything in an instant. We want today to be good. We want right now to be good. It's why we go into debt. It's why we pay more to speed shipping. It's why we freak out if we have to wait in line for more than two minutes. Because we worship the God of comfort and the God of now, even though he always lets us down. But Jesus says in John 16, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And when Jesus says that, he's telling this, I didn't come to win for you today, I came to win for you all eternity. My offer for you isn't the best life now, that's cheap. My offer for you is the best life forever. So as followers of Christ, we are called to suffer. As human beings, we'll face things that we do not understand, and they will knock us to our knees. They will take our breath away. They will confuse us and hurt us, but they do not get the final say, not in God's kingdom. So do not despise the suffering, for you will find God in it. 
as we go about our mission of taking Jesus to the world, may we carry the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, that we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not destroyed. We are struck, we are persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Because we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in us. And we will find, as they did in Acts 8, that God is good, that he will bring good, that he has the ultimate answer, and ultimately whatever he brings our way will be worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have the answer. God, it's not the specific answer. Lord, that as we face things in this life, we simply sometimes will not know why we're facing them. And Lord, you either choose or are incapable of explaining it to us in a way that we could grasp. And so you just give us your presence and not your answers. God, help us to revoke the need to know why. Help us to instead cling to the truths revealed in your word that you are good, that you are bringing good, and that you have the ultimate answer when you vanquish evil forever. May we be a church that proclaims you in times that are easy, in times that are comfortable, in times that are, that are smooth and good, and may we be a church that claims you in times that are tragic and chaotic and suffering. Because you're in the midst of all of it. You reign over all of it. You work through all of it and you bring good out of all of it. I pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.